Welcome to Behind the Paranormal with Paul and Ben Eno. What is a changeling? Are there really supernatural things we should be afraid of in the night? Who or what is kidnapping the children? Well, hello, and welcome to the 1029th edition of Behind the Paranormal with Paul and Ben Eno, coming to you from WOON AM uh, and FM radio here in Woonsocket, Rhode Island, on the Paranormal radio app from TalkStream Live on YouTube. I'm Ben, and with me today is Tim Schwartz. Can't hear you, Ben. Oh, that's probably why you can't hear me. I have me on Program 1, not Program 2. <laughs> oh, boy. it's It comes full circle, doesn't it? Well, I just gave the intro, and I started doing Tim's intro, because I was like, oh, Tim must not be able to hear me, and then I didn't look at the board, and here we are. You know what? It's it's funny how full circle it comes. So Tim Swartz was supposed to be doing this, and he's here with us as well to help things along, and Paul is with us via Skype. Hello. Say hello there, Tim. Oh, well, <laughs> Paul, Ben, and uh, uh, Joshua, uh, happy to be here with you all today. Well, it's great to have you with us, and uh, sorry about that little little goof there. You probably saw my mouth moving, and we're terrified, and you know what? <laughs> we're all in the same boat. So <laughs> so the, with us today, uh, prolific author and co-author of many books, Joshua Cutchen, uh, has appeared on a wide variety of paranormal programs, discussing his work, including uh, Coast to Coast AM and Mysterious Universe. Uh, Joshua has been featured on the uh, hit History Channel show, Ancient Aliens, and is a recurring roundtable guest on the uh, Where Did the Road Go podcast. Uh, he speaks at many paranormal conferences. Uh, one of his recent works is Thieves in the Night, A Brief History of Supernatural Child Abductions, uh, the subject of today's show. And uh, Joshua's website, Joshua Cutchin, that's C-U-T-C-H-I-N dot com. Joshua Cutchin, welcome back to Behind the Paranormal. It's so nice to be here, um, and uh, it's quite an honor to be here. Uh, today, so I really do appreciate it, and I'm looking forward to where the conversation takes us. Oh yes, and boy, oh boy, we're going to start off with a bang as we typically do. So, tell us what a changeling is, and is there ev- any evidence that the phenomenon exists? Oh boy, uh, how long is the program? <laughs> <laughs> long enough. So the simplest version of a changeling would be um, a human. The imposter that is left behind when a human infant is taken by something else. And I am, I am deliberately that vague because you will find allusions to changelings in the folklore of certain spirits. Um, you'll find allusions to them even in some wild man legends and even, I believe, among some Native American tribes, including some lake monster uh, legends as well. But where we typically know changelings from in uh, our modern pop culture is from the fairy folklore predominantly of western europe although again it is really a world's uh, worldwide global phenomenon um now as to exactly what this imposter left behind was and the reasons behind it uh that that requires a little bit more explanation generally speaking uh changelings that you would find in places like ireland and uh, the uk would have been left behind by the fairies and they would have fallen into one of three categories they would have been a sickly fairy infant uh they would have been an elderly fairy 
or they would have been what was known as a stock or a fetch, which oftentimes was sort of a, a wooden effigy that was cloaked with fairy magic or fairy glamour to appear like an animated child. Um, the reasons behind this do vary. Um, there are some very interesting connections that you can find that seem to speak to the way that our modern UFO phenomenon reflects older fairy folklore, by which I mean one of the reasons that fairies would take human infants would be because their own race was sort of dwindling in a dying race, and sometimes it was felt that from time to time the race would need a shot in the arm, so to speak, a new infusion of vigor and uh, good genes from the human population. So that's one reason, although if you had... Um, an elderly fairy involved in this transaction sometimes was almost like a hospice arrangement for the elderly fairy to live out its remaining days among human beings. Um, oftentimes, if it was an infant fairy that was the actual changeling, uh, it would be brought there because uh, fairy milk was deemed to be a sham. It had no substance to it, to it, whereas human milk was deemed to actually be nutritious. Um, but in these narratives, um, almost... Every single one of them ends the same way, which is the parent of the taken child begins to suspect that something is wrong with their infant. And eventually they, through a series of methods, um, reveal that the child is not a human child. And then they seek some sort of way to rectify the situation through the advice of a seer, cunning man, cunning woman, a fairy doctor, a folk medicine figure. Um, now, uh, does the, does the, do these stories have any basis in reality? That's, that's a thornier and more complex question. Um, a lot of modern medical scholars have seen hallmarks of some of these older changeling stories and have claimed that they represent a variety of diseases that we now recognize, both diseases and developmental disabilities. Um, things like progeria, um, other medical conditions uh, that we now recognize as being, you know, not supernatural um, have been blamed for the rise of uh, these changeling narratives. Um, similarly, some people in the medical community believe that these were early attempts of these communities to deal with um, autism. Uh, there is a darker side to some of these stories because in a lot of these changeling narratives, um, the changeling is cast out or sometimes even, quite frankly, tortured to the point of death. And um, in places like Ireland, this was in, you know, prior to the 19th century, a means by which to enact infanticide without having to deal with the repercussions if you had a child that was deemed more of a burden. Uh, than a than a help um, and the infanticide rates <clears throat> the infanticide rates in rural Ireland um, were absolutely uh, shocking uh, there's a book that I talk about by a scholar named Elaine Farrell um, who took a look at infanticide in Ireland between 1850 and 1900 and she was just looking at children less than three years old. And in that 50-year period, she found about 4,600 cases of infanticide. Um, and remember, this is not this is not an enormous country either. So um, it was a it was a common uh, problem uh, amongst the community, and there were a lot of different you know socioeconomic factors and reasons for that. But you have to whenever you talk about changelings, I think it's really important to sort of preface all this with the fact that these these stories do have a darker real-world set of implications. Mm. Having said that, um, there are stories that you will find um, where these changelings, 
one of the very common ways to sort of out the changeling as being of the fairy world, not of the human world, would be to entice it to speak <laughs> and in some sort of manner and usually intimate the fact that it was older than the oak. You know, that a lot of times I'd see, say, I, you know, I saw the acorn before the oak, but I've never seen X, Y, Z. So oh, some people have countered and pushed back against the explanation of the changing narrative being a means of dealing with developmental disabilities and have said, well, you know, these, these, in these stories, if we were to take some of them at face value, um, it appears as if the infant changeling actually talks and that's not something that you'd expect from, you know, uh, a mythologized version to sort of account for some of these developmental disabilities. So all those caveats aside, I, I tend to view the topic of changelings as more of a metaphysical switch. Um, than a physical one. Um, I think that it probably looks something a bit more like you would see along the lines of uh, soul theft in certain shamanic and in indigenous societies. But um, it's it's one of those motifs that has never really left us, and you find it in pop culture all the time. And uh, it there's there's plenty there's an entire uh, body of work dedicated to just studying how this motif has expressed itself both across time and space. Hmm, that is. Okay, well now now we've we we can go in in many directions, um, and that I, I think I think I, before we before we go down a weird rabbit hole where there's probably no answers, um, which is a majority of the paths I, I would suppose, um, I, I guess there the the word changeling is kind of a less a very less nuanced idea, you know, it kind of encompasses a lot of different things. It's like a framework almost. I guess you can kind of kind of look at stuff, um. Because, you know, you brought up the idea of, you know, alien abductions kind of being lumped in there and, like, you know, anything if you want to throw in, like, skinwalkers or anything like that. The sort of concept, you know, kind of rounding out the, the early portion of our definition there, it is present in a lot of different cultures, whether it's it's just this this idea of, you know, someone having essentially invasion of the body snatched or perhaps even used as an excuse for doing horrible and speakable things or – um Something to kind of explain the un the unexplainable at the time, right? Mm -hmm. um, I guess first things first. How can we differentiate the types of changelings? You know, in, instead of just saying, okay, well, you know, it's just fairies or it's just this or just that. There's, I guess, or maybe you can't differentiate. Maybe it's one of those things where it's 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 so new, it's so unnuanced and so malleable. You can form it into many different molds. Do you, do you follow what I'm saying? I do, and, and, and there is an additional sort of wrinkle in the fact that fairy folklore tends to be among the most malleable sets of belief that you'll find, um, to the extent that some people today that I've, I've met, um, will identify as changelings and say that, you know, oh, I was a fairy child who was swapped out, and that's not quite what these stories were describing. Um, and again, I tend to view a lot of these things on more of a, uh, a spiritual or, you know, uh, less uh, materialistic level than mm. a lot of these older stories would suggest. Um, but, yeah, it does sort of nest into this broader umbrella of shape-shifting and things not being as they seem. Um, <clears throat> the means by which you would sort of discover that you had a changeling in your midst um, would be that the child would 
constantly eat and never put on any weight. Um, it would just be ill-tempered. Um, you know, in a lot of these stories, and I'm sure, again, this is sort of a, a fictional um, embellishment, sometimes you would spy on the child and see the, the fairy child playing the bagpipes and dancing around the rafters of the house while you're not there. Um, and then you'd be like, oh, you're something different. Um, but the other the other method, which I sort of alluded to was earlier, was um, that you would do something nonsensical, and this would sort of coax the uh, the the changeling to have to announce the fact that it didn't know what you were doing. What I mean by that is that a common motif was this sort of it's called a brewery of eggshells, which would be that you would make something in some sort of unconventional container. So sometimes you'd be brewing beer in eggshells. Sometimes you'd be making porridge in um, in uh, in, sh- in shellfish, you know, uh, shells, huh. something like that. It was all very culture dependent. Um, you know, there are some cultures, I believe, in uh, amongst, I think it's like the, uh, I think it's amongst indigenous Finns, um, where they would construct a uh, a spoon so long that it would, you know, you connect a bunch of spoons together and it'll be a spoon so long that it would have to reach up the chimney. But the idea was to get the changeling to see something that they had never seen before. And that's where you get this, this sort of rhyme that, you know, you see different variations on it, but it's something along the lines of, um, the acorn before the oak I knew, but never beer in eggshell brew. And that's the idea of saying, Hey, I'm old and I've never seen this. And I just had to speak up about it. Huh? Um, but you know it's it it is tied now to nowadays um if you do view the fairy folklore as a continuum that has evolved into the um sort of alien abduction mythos um which you know if if you have another 2 hours i can make a very strong case for that myself <laughs> but um but you know looking at the work of folks like Jacques Vallée um and myself who've just really dug into this i see antecedents in modern ufo contact with pretty much anything that you'll find in the fairy folklore. And if you look at it that way, then this constant uh, refrain that we hear from the UFO community of, you know, the hybridization program, or even things like indigo children or star children, really do seem to be a variation on this um, thing. Although I will say that in the case of indigo children and star children, they are sort of these uh, changed out imposters with something else, but they tend to be more positive, you know. Um <laughs> But, <laughs> They're not trying to steal your life. They're just trying to make the world <laughs> well, a better place. But, but that, that's something that took me a while to get my head around is the fact that even when something looks like the exact opposite, sometimes it's, it's an expression of the same motif, for, motif from a folklore perspective. What I mean by that is that, you know, the, the, um, the changelings are these substitutes that are horrible to be around because, you know, every one of these stories says that living with a changeling is just the most stressful thing ever. Um, Whereas these indigo children and star children are wonderful to have around. I'm like, well, how are these things related if they're the polar opposites? But then I read a a passage from uh, Patrick Harper's Daemonic Reality, which is an excellent book. And he he makes a reference to the fact that um, in these older fairy legends, the fairies are always going, 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 but never gone. You see these numerous allusions dating back to Chaucer about the exodus of the fairies who are being driven out by scientism or materialism or the industrial revolution or whatever. The fairies are always going, 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 but never gone. And according to the ufologists, the aliens are always coming, 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 but never here. Mm. And that, that was one I was like, okay, so it seems as if, you know, these motifs can change to the exact opposite and still sort of retain the the similar um similar sentiment behind them. So um yeah, I would definitely put all these in this in the same spectrum. Is that kind of an answer to your question? Yeah, <laughs> no, it, it it definitely it, it doesn't sound like it is, but it is because you you use the magic word, which is mythos. 
and and that's that's very important because we're all participating in this in this story, right? You know, we use the word mythology not as, you know, this is a goofy little thing that we're using to explain lightning and weather, where it's it's a story in which we participate. And in in this in this case, you know, I I have I have this this idea, well it's not an idea, this is kind of a fact. We're we're at a tremendous disadvantage because we're in the year 2024 now and most of these stories were written, you know, hundreds of if not thousands of years ago and these ideas have been passed along for so long that we are now in this post postmodern society and you know what do we do with all of this right we've thrown out everything we have no context for anything so of course you'll have people walking up to you saying oh yeah well i'm a fairy and it's like okay cool sure yeah yeah you know what why not you know it's (laughs) you know it it could be it could be possible but you know the idea of the context of it right you know this was considered a bad thing you know it's like california buddhism you know my very short stint where i spent some time at the providence zen center they uh they referred to you know, the sort of like pop Buddhism is California Buddhism, where it's like it's not really real. It's just kind of mm-hmm, like a mm-hmm. like a like a marketed version of it. You know, it's you're not getting the real thing. It's seen as this yeah. mystical with, thing. With, with all with all the difficult parts filed off to accommodate your 21st century needs. <laughs> yeah, um. exactly. Exactly. I mean, you know what I mean. So, but it's the same. Yeah, it's no, the I, same deal. You know, and I I, I, I agree. I, yeah. No, I I totally know what you mean, and I think that like I think that. Oh my goodness. I mean, this is, this is sort of getting into something that we could talk about as well, but, um, I, I'm definitely of the opinion that if you look at a lot of these topics, but especially something like the UFO topic, which I believe is related to the fairy topic, um, we, we labor too hard towards proving these things in this binary of true or false and, you know, physical or psychic. And one of my favorite, um, one of my favorite summations of this, uh, of of how unsustainable this idea is was put forth by Terrence McKenna on an old episode of Thinking Aloud where he said, you know, just because the UFO is a psychic object does not mean that it's not a physical object. And he goes <laughs> on to explain how, you know, along this sort of Jungian line of thinking that we don't have the intellectual tools to explore that barrier where things can sometimes be psychic and sometimes be physical. But mm. if you look at a lot of the paranormal, there is a suggestion that these things do inhabit that space. I mean, psi phenomena is both internal, but also can affect consensus reality. And uh, ghosts seem to not be really of that much substance but can interact with our physical environment and leave behind footprints and talcum powder and slam doors so i think that we have to really sort of revisit this sort of dichotomy that we have between the real and the not real or the psychic and the physical or Mm. quite frankly between reality and fiction i think that that boundary is a little bit more porous than we would suspect so when i have people come to me and say you know i'm a fairy i was displaced from my fairy home sometime in my youth I treat them in, in, you know, obviously I, I treat everyone that I meet with respect, but I treat their scenario in my head similar to the way that I treat people who come to me and say that they believe that they're, you know, half Zeta Reticulum, that they were a, a baby that was a product of this, this hybridization program. I think that there's a truth there, but I think that it's more of a metaphorical truth than it is a literal truth, and I think that it might have something to do with existing on this sort of spiritual level. And if you look at a lot of these, if you look at a lot of these stories, these changeling stories, the reason that I've sort of come around to viewing them as sort of something more along the lines of soul theft is that in most of the stories that you see of these changeling children, when they are switched back, when the, when, you know, so the idea, (laughs) I'm getting ahead of myself, the idea was to basically um, torture the changeling 
until the fairy folk would see how poorly you were treating one of their own kind and re-swap the two, giving you back your human child. Um, and of course, obviously, as we've alluded to, this led to some incredible tragedies. But what I find interesting about reading those stories is that oftentimes you aren't necessarily present when the swap takes place. So in, you know, in rural Ireland, you'll find allusions to not only leading the, leaving them at places of power like crossroads or open graves, but also outside on the dung heap. And then you hear a great whirlwind and you go back outside and it's no longer a changeling. It's your own human infant. There was one instance that I found in, um, fairy faith in Celtic countries by Walter Evans Wentz, where there was a child who, um, was a changeling and awoke after being swapped out, but there was, no physical swap out the child just sort of awoke as if they were coming out of a coma or a trance so i do suspect that something's happening here at more of a metaphysical level which would definitely be in tandem with some of these changeling stories that you would see that afflicted adults because segments of the population that were deemed vulnerable not only children but also women would also be switched out for these changelings as well. And in many of these cases, these people wasted away and died. But the idea held within the community was that the person who was buried wasn't the actual person, it was the changeling that was buried. But another way of looking at that is that there was some sort of illness or trauma that led to a loosening of the bonds between body and soul, and the person really was, in that sense, away with the fairies, but the thing that you buried was their physical self. And that's sort of where I've come around to. Um, you know, a lot of the rural Irish uh, folklore would strongly disagree with that assessment. They felt that it was a physical swap. But, you know, if you look at the fact that many cultures believe that our souls can wander in times of distress or trauma or illness, and the fact that the near-death literature seems to suggest that as well, including these near-near-death experiences where no trauma is present, then I would think that what we're actually seeing in the cases of some of these changelings is someone basically being deprived or switched out of their soul or something along the lines of a walk-in or a possession or something. Hmm. It is a um, a universal human fear, isn't it, that not only can our children or loved ones be snatched away from us the moment that our back is turned from them, <laughs> but that they could also be taken from us by a supernatural type of element. I mean, it's one thing that, you know, the bear can come into your cabin and, you know, eat yeah. your children, but... What can you do about something that's paranormal that, you know, just, you know, can, can do whatever it wants and we're powerless against it? No, right. I mean, you, you can, you can prepare against even things. I mean, obviously you can prepare <laughs> against a bear attack, you know, um, yeah. uh, with, with, you know, firearms and weapons and making sure that your door is bolted. But, um, you can also prepare to a certain degree against things like illness with, you know, healthy practices and clean running water. But if there's this supernatural element, then it supersedes all precautions. And that's why you have the, you know, this development of these superstitions that you'd find. And the list of superstitions to prevent changelings is just about as long as the list of, of changeling stories themselves. But, um, but yeah, it does speak to this primal fear and this sort of powerlessness that a lot of us feel. And I think is, is heightened, uh, you know, when you're a, when you're a new parent, especially. And a lot of these narratives take place with young, exceedingly young children. The idea was that um, up until the point of baptism is when these infants were most vulnerable to being swapped out for changelings, which, you know, speaks to the fact that they were in this liminal zone, right, between birth and being, you know, born into the church. Um, the sort of in-between zone was when they were they were most at risk. So, yeah. <clears throat> the 
this does it does bring up an interesting point because not only do we have this idea of of fairy stories and these these changeling ideas kind of woven into history it's like it, it it is indeed sort of almost ingrained in us in in a sense and we we it, it's expressed in a lot of different ways and i'm reminded a lot of um philosopher charles taylor who talks a lot about the uh the, the sort of two ideas of the self in human history. So you have, you know, the pre-modern idea of, of the self with the porous self, where sort of the, the boundary between the world and yourself is fluid, and it's sort of a give and take. And then you have the modern version of it, which is the buffered self, where you step back from the world and analyze all of it. And I think there's disadvantages to and advantages mm-hmm. to both sort of ideas. But there there is that idea where, you know, that, you know, if you're if you're living in, in a rural place, the the boundary between yourself and the world is very porous. You know, you're very much in tune with the world around you. You know when something's up, and you know it's like if you're you walk in the same the same path, yeah. the same the same trail. You know, if you if you go hiking a lot, and you go down the same way, and you you all of a sudden you hear no no sounds, and you know something's up. It's it's sort of that that I think it's sort of a, a under the surface where where we find ourselves porous, but we like to kind of like put on this this very thick skin so that we can step away from everything and everybody and it's very much in, informed by the materialistic world around us. Um we are coming up on our break and I will get to my point once we <laughs> once we get there. I promise I'm not I'm not meandering. It's it's definitely worth it, but you're listening to Behind the Paranormal with Paul and Ben, you know, and Tim Schwartz talking with Joshua Cutchin about changelings, fairies, and folklore. And we'll be right back right after this. Casey Kasem has unlocked the American Top 40 vaults and is replaying original shows from the 80s. This week, Casey brings us a special, part two of the Top 100 Songs of 1983. We'll hear big hits by Michael Jackson, The Police, Bonnie Tyler, Culture Club, Donna Summer, and many more. They're all right here on part two of the Top 100 Songs of 1983. On American Top 40, the 80s. You can depend on us for public service, Owen Radio. Never get tired of that jingle. You're listening to Behind the Paranormal with Paul and Ben Eno and our wonderful guest, Joshua Cutchin, and guest co-host, Tim Schwartz. And we're talking about fairy folk, we're talking about folklore, and we're talking about changelings, and we're, we're discussing sort of the deeper implications of them in human society. And now I'm going to get to my point that I started to make before we, we got to the break. And my point is this. My wife really likes true crime. Loves true crime. You know, and she and she scares the crap out of herself. And it's but she can't get enough of it. And it's it's so fascinating because it, she's like, We have to do all these things to keep people out of her house and I'm like, Marion, we live in an incredibly safe town. <laughs> it's like the statistics are very slim despite what all the documentaries and podcasts will tell you. But it's it's the same the same, you know, fear that there's something unstoppable coming for me and my family and, you know, my my property, my things. And that sort of idea that we we have all of this protection and there but there's something on the outside of it there's something on the outskirts of society and typically it's where the monstrous lives where you know something unexplainable can happen and i i guess the you know there 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 could be an element of illness there could be an element of of you know spiritualness to it but there i always kind of like the the balanced approach of maybe it's a little bit of both 
because it's because it you know there's a spiritual reality to everything whether we like to admit it or not you know it, the the problem mm-hmm. is when you kind of go to one side or the other and you say it's all this it's all that because then you're not treating the whole problem uh, i i think it's a holistic view of reality I, I don't know how you feel about that no i i think that you're absolutely right i mean I, to your earlier point it's um <laughs> it's it's almost as if all of our technological improvements have been trying to erect more and more buffers between us and reality. Um, you know, I've been thinking about that quite a lot lately. Um, but, uh, yeah, I, I think that embracing the pendulum swing one way or the other too much, um, you're just going to be made a fool if you're into these topics, right? Um, if you say that it's all psychic or that it's all, you know, imaginal, um, you're going to find those burn marks in the ground at the UFO site. And you're going to find that Bigfoot footprint mm. in the ground. Um, and I think that Sometimes in my more contemplative moments, I think that that might even be the purpose of this phenomenon is to sort of challenge us to reevaluate our preconceptions. But, um, you know, a good example of sort of what you're getting at is um, I will sit here and adamantly tell you that um, there is no indication of fairies in any of the folklore of having wings. You just won't find it. Fairy do not have, fairies do not have wings. They're often short, but just as often can appear the size of an average human being. Um, fairy wings are uh, an addition <clears throat> that was um, added on in Shakespearean plays and children's books. But then you look at the uh, work of someone like my friend, Dr. Simon Young, who has put together this fairy census, which is an excellent resource looking at contemporary fairy encounters. And, you know, at least in the first of the two, he just dropped a new one, but in the first of those two fairy censuses, you'll find that the accounts are replete with these little, you know, effeminate women with wings flitting through the air. So I do think that there's an aspect of this that is sort of responding to our own cultural expectations and um, and sort of co-creating with us in a way. Um, now, I said I made it a point to say in the first because I haven't had a chance to dig into the second lately. I'm going to do that next week. But um, uh, Simon has released a second fairy census of just fairy sightings from, I believe, I believe 2017 until now. <clears throat> and I had heard, and again, I have not had the chance to go through this, but I've, I had heard that the winged fairy has sort of um, started to taper off in terms of the number of times that it's been sighting. And some of these descriptions are hewing back to the older interpretations of these beings mm-hmm. being um, a little bit more conventional in their appearance if you're looking at the older folklore, which I think probably says a lot about the direction that our culture is taking, you know, and the sort of uh, how interested folks have become in, you know, folk magic and the occult and whatnot. I think that might be playing a role in the way that these things manifest. But again, um, just because they change their appearance doesn't mean that they can't steal your shoes <laughs> you know, right, or, yeah. or things like that. <clears throat> um, yeah. So it's, it, it really is a tightrope that you have to walk and you have to, um, in that very Robert Anton Wilson way, be, uh, be aware and not fall into, um, sort of hewing, sort of, a uh, following your own belief system too much. You have to be sort of open to a lot of different approaches. Mm. Or just be incredibly not nuanced. <laughs> Either or. That's so, so I guess it, my my follow up question to that would be: Is it that the the phenomena is manifesting, or is it the perspective on the phenomena that's changing? Well, I mean, you know, in line with what we just said, I think that uh, your guess is as good as mine. Um, mm-hmm. I, I think that whatever this is, I think that 
it has been actually surprisingly consistent over the years. Um, you know, a lot of people hear me talk and they sort of get it backwards what I'm driving at when I draw the comparisons to the UFO stuff. Um, they'll think that I think that today's aliens are actually fairies in disguise or that yesterday's fairies were, were aliens in disguise. And that's, that's not really the role of what, um, true comparativism has to offer. I think what it really is is just saying, look, I, Without making a judgment call on the on the ontology of these things, you can say these things look similar. Um, I do suspect that it's the same thing that we've had, and I think that it's walked with us ever since we, um, you know, first uh, made fire. You know, <laughs> I think mm. that it's been with us all this time. Um, and that's just my own personal assessment of it. But um, but I do think that it's it's been with us, and it's sort of adapts to the cultural and societal expectations. I mean, again, you look at the UFO phenomenon, um, which I know isn't our primary focus, but the way that these craft have sort of changed from these Art Nouveau flying saucers into these, you know, deep state black triangles that remind <laughs> the stealth bomber to, to um, you know, well, in starting even further back, you know, the, these steampunk airships and the airship wave of the 1900s, yeah, right. and now and now they're these sort of like drone-like plasmoids that dart across the sky. It seems like whatever our expectations are, this thing adapts. And in the case of the UFO, just sort of adds about 20 years to what we can do. <laughs> Maybe adds a generation to what we can do and how it can manifest. Um, and again. Don't get me wrong. I'm not saying that this is in people's heads. Um, it might be from people's heads in the sense that, you know, we're tapping into some sort of union collective unconscious or <clears throat> archetypes or egregores. Take your pick. Um, but but I, I do think that uh, whatever this is has the ability to interact with us and to uh, sort of anticipate our expectations. Interesting. You got anything, Tim? Well, it is interesting that, uh, I mean, here we are in the 21st century, and uh, as you alluded to, there are still reports coming in of people having these fairy experiences. And a lot of these reports come from people who, have, you know, like like most people, have no idea right. that, uh, that this is a reoccurring uh, phenomenon. To them, fairies is something you see on Disney or, you know, in, in your uh, children's books. Yeah, it's it's always so funny to me when people are talking about like you know, well, Bigfoot is plausible because we know that there were large prom primates in the past, and it's not like we're talking about unicorns and leprechauns. And I always go, actually, maybe, <laughs> <laughs> you know, it's just it's just it's such a I I don't I can't even. There are very few paranormal, quote-unquote, hills that I'll die upon. Psy phenomena is one of them. The near-death experience is another one of them. I don't really know that this stuff has any objective reality to it, but I will say that, like, we cannot get away from these motifs and these themes. I mean, I've had an idea. My latest um, book, Focusing on Fairies, is this collection of essays called Fairy Films, and it looks at a broad variety, a broad, uh, variety of, of movies and television shows that sort of incorporate fairy themes, both um, explicitly and implicitly. Uh, I was the editor of it, and I contributed one essay, and I have a lot of other authors who were kind enough to contribute essays to it as well. Um, but that's just one example you know, how, of how these themes sort of creep into our lives. I mean, there's another idea that I've played with for a long time. I'll probably never do it, but it's this idea of putting together a, a, a coffee table book that's just a list of of um, 
these fairy words that have stuck with us all this time. I mean, you know, the, the word stroke, the medical condition for a stroke is directly derived from the idea of the fairy stroke, the idea that the fairies would come up and sort of, you know, touch you and make you seize up. Huh. Um, I never knew you that. know, the, 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 yeah. Oh yeah. It's, <laughs> it was exactly, that's, that's part of my point is like, it, we just live with this stuff. We don't really realize how much it's been of an influence. I mean, the color cobalt, you know, that blue color cobalt was directly uh, derived from the uh, kobolds, which are sort of a Tommyknocker fairy variation that lived in Germany, that lived in the mines of Germany. Um, you know, to this day, if you have a, a ring of mushrooms in your yard and, you know, you get a lawn care bill, it might say, you know, removal of fairy ring. <laughs> you know? And and the, these are all things that we just like sort of live with and that we, they've become so incorporated into our lives. And, um, you know, changelings are also one of those things as well. If you if you sort of look for that child swap, um, child child abduction and child swap trope, you'll find it all over your your pop culture. Um and you know, again, I find it really interesting. There was a uh, there was a Netflix series. Spoiler for a Netflix series that's several years old now, but it was a Netflix series called Katla that takes place, and I believe it was Iceland. And uh, there are all these sort of strange doubles of people who were popping up, and the explanation was that it was a meteorite from space that was doing it. And I'm like, well, you're kind of just shifting the goals, right? Because it's like, oh, well, it's from space, so it's magic. <laughs> <laughs> I'm like, what, 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 but, but what you're doing is you're telling another of these, not a fairy tale, but like another fairy story, a story that's really has these deep ties embedded into fairy folklore like we knew it. So we just, we're just, we're going to keep reinventing the same thing, but it's always going to come back to a lot of these fairy tropes that we see. Interesting. Well, before we burn up the hour here, Josh, why don't you tell us a little bit about uh, your books where people can find out more about you and do a little bit of shameless self-promotion. <laughs> okay. I have I have an allergic reaction to that, but I'll try my best. <laughs> um, I have trouble counting how many books I've done because I've gotten to the point where I kind of had to split them in half um, because they get too long. Um, so depending on how you count, I've written seven books. Um, A Trojan Feast, which is about the food and drink offerings uh, that take place in some of these encounters. Um, the Brimstone Deceit, which is all about smells during certain paranormal encounters. Um, Thieves in the Night, which we've talked about today. Um, my two-parter with my co-author, Timothy Renner, called Where the Footprints End, which is all about high strangeness and Bigfoot reports. Um, the Fairy Films essay collection that I mentioned. Uh, my latest nonfiction book is the two-parter Ecology of Souls, A New Mythology of Death and the Paranormal, and that talks about how a lot of these different uh, contact modalities, these different phenomena, um, all seem to tie into a narrative that centers around our final transition in a lot of ways. Um, you know, pertinent to today's conversation, uh, there are a lot of cultures that prior to the rise of theosophy in the 19th century would have thought of fairies not as as nature elementals, but as the human dead. So there are a lot of connections that you can draw to these different things. So that's that's my latest nonfiction. And then in August of last year, I had the, the very foolish idea of writing a novel um, <laughs> called, called Them Old Ways Never Died. Um, it was... I had, I had numerous factors that made me decide to do that, um, not the least of which was the fact that I didn't really have the appetite for writing another nonfiction book at the time. Mm. But um, it was I, it was sort of a challenge to myself to see if I could do it. And if you've been paying attention to uh, today's interview, you probably have a good idea of who the antagonists in that particular novel are. Um, but then uh, I'm I'm pleased to uh, announce. This, I believe this is the first time that I've announced it on a on a on an interview or a radio or a podcast. Um, 
This spring, I'll be teaching a course on near-death experiences through the Cosmos Institute. That's K-O-S-M-O-S Institute.org. Um, it begins on March 23rd. It is a nine-class course on near-death experiences. Um, and we're going to go through some of the more and less common aspects of near-death experiences before transitioning in the latter half of the class to look at some of the ways that the near-death experience seems reflected in things like other altered states of consciousness, um, fairy encounters, um, shamanic initiations in various worldwide cultures, and the close encounter experience. So I'm really excited about that. And anybody who's interested, again, can go to cosmosinstitute.org. That's cosmos with a K. Um, I'm not sure when enrollment ends, but I do know that the first class will be in late March, so sooner rather than later if anyone's interested in that. It's part of a... Uh, part of a series of courses uh, that will conclude with a course taught by uh, Dr. Jeffrey Kripal. So it's a real honor to be included in that. Yeah, We do like Dr. Jeffrey. He's a, he's a really good guy. He enjoyed having him on the show. I, uh, Tim, do you have anything else? Because I, I have a very I'm, I want to launch into something. I don't want to step on you. <laughs> <laughs> well, I just wanted to uh, uh, comment real quick uh, talking about the whole uh, um, uh, death and dying uh, motif. I just saw somebody talking about uh, a, uh, um, uh, a death experience that he had where he said that he ended up uh, in what appeared to be almost like a, a hospital or a clinic-like situation and that uh, around his bed were these little blue guys <laughs> that uh, uh, he said sounded uh, that looked an awful lot like uh, um, the uh, Whitley Strieber blue yeah, guys yeah. from from Communion? Mm-hmm. And when you mentioned earlier, Cobble, you know, yep. the yeah, so it's just like you know, once again, here we have this this interesting intertwining of these different types of. Mythos, phenomena, however you you know you, you want to put it. <laughs> yeah, everything seems to touch everything else in this particular field, and that's part of the reason that I found it kind of frustrating that the ghost people have stayed away from the UFO people, and the UFO people have stayed away from the Bigfoot people because there seems to be some sort of connective tissue there. If not the same phenomenon wearing different masks, then at least this thing seems to manifest in similar ways or use similar vectors to communicate. But there does seem to be some sort of connection between all these things. And when you do an interview, it kind of makes you sound like a crazy person because you feel like you have to talk about all these different things to bring together a, a cohesive narrative. So and it's, that's where we are, I guess. Well, context is everything. It is incredibly <laughs> important. It's if, you, if you've ever read anything by Dostoevsky, it's like 90% of it is like context. But it's, it's all important <laughs> stuff because it's, it's, it's good to know the story behind things because then you can understand it. You know, My dad always used to say you have to know where you came from to know where you're going. And so I think apt. Um, but there, that is my theory. I've had this theory. I wrote it in an essay that I never finished. It's somewhere on my hard drive, and one day I will finish it, that my theory is that the paranormal is the mythology of the modern world. And yes. my my theory for this is because we have all these unexplained things, and, and we're trying so hard to to fit it into these boxes and we're like okay you know bigfoot's way over there ghosts are over there and it's like you know the ghost people will be like well bigfoot's not real ghost you know he's obviously <laughs> yeah. he's obviously a ghost but you know dead people ghosts of dead people that's a thing and then you have the bigfoot people saying the same thing about ghosts and you have you follow just keeping an arm's length away from all of it because they want scientific credit and so it's it's a it's a whole thing but it's all part of the same sort of 
like web that we've been a part of forever. You know, all of these things are in every different culture, and they're they're given different names. You know, Bigfoot's called Haruman in India, in in um, in Hinduism, you know, or you know, Yeti or whatever. Or you know, if you even want to go way further back, you can call him Enkidu if you'd like. You know, it's it's one of those things where it's these things have been present, and it's so it's so hard to nuance it and not sound like an idiot because it's it's just so unnuanced. <laughs> it's just a phenomena that's just constantly present, and we're trying our best to define it from all of our different cultural perspectives. But there's obviously an objective reality, but we're all experiencing that objective reality subjectively. And and their story, the phenomena, the different sort of types of phenomena that you mentioned, their story really is is our story, and that's something I think it's really important to understand is that um, you know the diversity of this phenomenon. It's a lot like humanity, right? It manifests in diverse ways, but underneath it, there is this similar theme that you can find globally in all these different contexts, much like much like human beings. So, <clears throat> um, yeah, I, I think that. Uh, I don't want to go too far into where we're in, in, too far past our, our, our time here, but um, there's a wonderful quote from Ami Michel uh, that he told Jacques Vallée, which is, he said, uh, looking at UFOs is, is a curious business because you start with field work and you end up looking at the work of, of Arab mystics. Mm-hmm. And I really think that's a great quote that sort of gets at how uh, these, looking into these phenomena can be sort of a, a form of personal alchemy and improvement and finding interest in places that you normally wouldn't. And, and sometimes at the end of the day, it, even if none of this stuff has any objective reality, I think it's made me a better rounded person. Hmm. I mean, hey, that's a that's a positive outlook on it. Some people just get really entrenched in what they <laughs> what they're into. <laughs> so I mean, I yeah. guess it's kind of like six and one half dozen in the other in in some sense of the word. But no, I I I tend to I tend to agree because it's um I I got I want to take a quick half step back. You mentioned food and drink offerings, and I I had to say something about it. I was listening to um, a lecture a while ago with a biblical scholar, and someone was asking a question like, well, why would you like burn stuff? And he was like, well, how do you think, you know, they're supposed to eat it? Right. <laughs> and, right. And he was, yeah. and he was talking about like, um, someone was like, oh yeah, well, you know, people in Athens, they bring the, the food and stuff to like, you know, the, to like the idols. And then they'd have like, you know, the little, little thing of oil. And he's like, but I just never understood what the oil was for. And he was like, well, you burnt, that's what burned the cake. <laughs> like, right. Right. And it was like, yeah. And it was interesting because I, I I thought about that because we still do a lot of stuff with smell, and it's like the the sense of smell is really big in folklore. I mean, you have sage, you have you know incense, you have all of these different things, and the the it's all part of the senses in which we interact with this sort of other layer of reality, if you will, that's going on at the same time. And it's it's just I don't know, it's just interesting stuff. I just wanted to put that out there because it is it is important because the senses are important. Yeah, and, and there's an entire, believe it or not, uh, field of olfactory philosophy that talks at length about the fact that we tend to trust our noses even more than we trust our eyes and our ears because there's, you know, we, this doesn't pass the smell test. Something doesn't <laughs> smell right. A rose by any other name. These ideas sort of um, imply that our noses can cut to the cut to the chase and determine the true nature of something. And you know, it makes sense if you're dealing with something that's as ephemeral as this phenomenon seems to be that uh, there's something. Well, essential in the essential oil sense um, mm. about something like smell. Yeah, it makes the tang- it renders the intangible tangible. Yeah. Huh. Interesting. 
Well, I guess one one thing I got I, we're we're kind of coming down to the wire here, but um, I I guess we can we can end on on a fun little note. So, Josh, where do you feel? I, I guess you're sort of an omni paranormal, you know, investigator in this sense. Where do you see the field heading in the next few years? Um, it, it depends on if we're around as a species in the next few years. It's um, <laughs> a good uh, caveat. Um, you know, I, I I actually am finding myself more bullish on the current UFO uh, disclosure season, um, which is a phrase that I never thought would come out of my mouth, but. Um, I do think that some interesting developments have been made um, recently, and I have also been sort of – I've been approaching the topic with a new awareness as to the fact that a lot of the people who are involved in the disclosure movement um, seem to be fully aware of and in acknowledgement of some of the high strangeness and some of the stranger aspects of the phenomenon. Um, I think that even – amongst uh, people who would still adhere to the extraterrestrial hypothesis, there is an acknowledgement that this has something to do with consciousness as well and the fundamental nature of reality, which has been a big reason why I've always had so much hesitancy towards sort of endorsing the disclosure movement is because I saw those as being a secondary concern to proving that we're being visited by little green scientists. So I think that something interesting is going to happen in that regard. Um, What I would sort of, where I'm sort of anticipating that we land is if you look at something like the... uh, the Kennedy assassination. You know, 15, 20 years ago, if you talked to a person on the street, there was kind of a 50-50 chance that they might think that there was something strange going on with the Kennedy assassination. Nowadays, it's like, you know, 2080. <laughs> so most mm-hmm. people are saying, there is some, some, we're not being told something, right? That's sort of where the general consensus of the population has landed, at least in my experience. And I think that might be where we land with the UFO question in the next couple of years. Not that we know that they're from Zebel Ganubi or Zeta Reticuli, but rather that there does seem to be something genuinely anomalous that we don't have the full story of. And while that is a far cry from what we've been promised in terms of disclosure, it's also a marked sea change in terms of the way that the public looks at the phenomenon. So that's sort of my prediction. Predictions tend to age like milk. <laughs> um, <laughs> but that's that's my prediction for where these fields go. Um, I do continue to see some really exciting scholarship in terms of bringing these different topics together and a lot of cross-pollination. The same cross-pollination that you mentioned, so many communities were sort of hesitant to engage in, and I think that's really exciting as well. So that's where I think we will wind up if we don't get too preoccupied with, you know, just trying to stay alive in the next few years. Yeah, right. That's a... Uh, that's in, in- in some cases, it's a very important thing to be preoccupied by. That's <laughs> true. That's true. <laughs> and I guess uh, on on that note, Josh, thank you for being with us. And uh, now I have the uh, unfortunate pleasure of um, doing our one final announcement today, uh, which is only one, um, and it is a very sad one. Uh, this is our, our final broadcast for those who did not know. Um, one factor in my dad's complex illness is that he uh, can't always speak and never very clearly, unfortunately. Um, we've always been a father and son team. And, um, so after 15 and a half years on the air and some, geez, 1200 broadcasts, uh, we feel that we cannot carry on uh, without the two of us fully functioning, unfortunately. Um, but our website, BehindTheParanormal.com will remain available for free access to all of our recorded shows. So if you do want to listen to those 1,200 shows, they are all there and also on your favorite podcast platforms. Um, those will all be uh, available as well. Um, so from the bottom of our hearts, uh, we 
thank the hundreds of people who have supported us and encouraged us along the way. Um, the folks at Achieve Radio in South Dakota, um, where we initially got our start. Man, that was a, that was a long, long, long time ago. Jeez, that was like 13. Um, and that was that was back. Oh no, that was 15. That was 2008. Um, the the team at CBS Radio from 2009 to 2014, and most of all, here at WOON AM and FM Radio uh, for nearly our entire time on the air. I think it was from 2009 on, if I'm if I'm not mistaken. Um, our great show here includes uh, our our wonderful benevolent station manager and executive producer uh, uh, Dave Richards, uh, tech producer Craig Pelletier, uh, casting producer Lori Greer and research assistant uh, Andrew Veranis, and as well as me on the board here uh, every every week. Um, they got us through regular shows, as well as the countless hair-raising and on-location broadcasts, and that is why I have no hair today. Um, guest co-hosts uh, have kept us going over the years, too, especially lately, so many thanks to you, Tim Schwartz, for being on with us today, um, Shane Searway, Lori Greer, uh, Matt Moniz, uh, Bill Burns, Rick Eno, um, Mark D'Antonio, Valerie LaFaso, Kathleen Martin, Peter William Shelley, and even Nick Pope, if you're listening. That one time you sat in for my dad and co-hosted a show with me. And whom, how many people can say that? <laughs> <laughs> uh, and we remember our, our uh, late co-hosts, uh, Rosemary Ellen Guiley and Tim Beckley. Uh, so many thanks to our hundreds of, of guests and, and millions of listeners in over 65 countries over the years. It's been a wild ride. Can't say we didn't discuss a lot. You know, I mean, It's not like we didn't go out on a high note, I'd like to think, anyway. Um, and who knows? You know, we'll, we'll see what the future holds. Well, I just, uh, I just want to thank both Paul and Ben for 15 and a half years of excellent shows, wonderful guests on subjects that fascinate us all. And uh, I, I tell you, I'm honored that they have allowed me to be a part of Behind the Paranormal. So thank both of you. All I can say is thank you and keep watching the skies. Well, we'll leave you here today with a thought from Katrina Mayer. Beginnings and endings are exactly the same. It just depends on which side of the door you choose to be on. I'm Tim Schwartz. I'm Paul Eno. I'm Ben Eno. And considering we have about a minute left, I do have, have one final comment to say besides the prepared statement that I, I, I read off of. Um, because, boy, oh, boy, how can you fit 15 and a half years into five minutes? Um, you can't. And, uh, you know, we've had the, the pleasure of talking to greats all over the, all over the field. We've had, you know, it, you never know how much your words affect somebody. And, and it's, I always find it strange when people say it's an honor to be on our show because, you know, the other 90% of the week I'm behind a desk, you know, ordering materials and trying to buy trucks and deal with the RMV. It's it's very strange when 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 people say that, but it is it has been an incredible honor and an amazing experience to do this with my dad, and it's been, you know, it's it's been one of the, one of the best things that's ever happened to me. And you know, thank you, Dad, for having for being a part of this with me, and um, thank you everybody for for being a part of this journey with us. And you know what? Thank you for joining us on our great cosmic journey. This is behind the paranormal with Paul and Ben Eno. 
Return to this radio frequency 167 hours from now for another edition of Behind the Paranormal with Paul and 